0: This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am your host. I am the the narrator of the episodes, as well as the author of Mindframe, Dave Moten. And with me, as always, in the silent shadows of production is Brent Van Tassel, pushing buttons and adjusting sliders and mastering social media for us. Um, Thank you, as always, for your help. He is the reason that we are a Podbelly Original. If you like podcasts, if you like what we're doing here, definitely go to podbelly.com and check out some other uh, podcasts that are on that network. We're a proud part of the the Podbelly family. Always like to start the show with a big, genuine shout-out for El Yucateco Hot Sauce. They are our sponsor. We really love them. I always tell people that we love them when we do this show, but my nephew just came in from Oregon when I asked him what he wanted to do here in Bakersfield. He said he wanted to go to a place called Dave's Tacos. He wanted to eat at the Wienerschnitzel, which is a really gross fast food uh, hot dog chain. And then his third request was he wanted to go to this uh, Mexican grocery store called Vallarta because he wanted to stock up on El Yucateco because we sent him some in the mail. And uh, now he's addicted, but he can't find it very frequently in Portland. So um, it is good enough that I've brainwashed my nephew that when he travels to Southern California, one of his destinations is a market where he can buy all the flavors of El Yucateco. So we're not lying when we say we love it. It is a family um, affliction, our love for El Yucateco. But check it out if you like hot sauce. If someone in your life likes hot sauce, then uh, check it out. And then finally, aside from these regular episodes where we cover the chapters, uh, there's also the sit-down episodes. Uh, you can access all the sit-down episodes if you become a patron. A, if you just want to hear the the backstory of what's happening from chapter to chapter. For some people, it's helpful for them to kind of keep their footing and, and know where, where they are in the story. Some people just like it because it's sort of a whole full second podcast where the three of us sit around and chew the fat, shoot the breeze about what's happening in Mindframe. But go to patreon.com backslash and you can find all that stuff. So, this episode, uh, you'll notice that now that we're in book two, the chapter orders are going to be a little bit different than they have been up until now. So, uh, new to the chapter rotation is uh, Sophie Arnaz. We last saw Sophie Arnaz in a chapter where she had to unfortunately shoot her lover in the catwalk above the theater and his uh, two assistants in the theater. So, Marcellus Ball lying dead at her feet and a gun smoking in her hand, we join Sophie Arnaz for Chapter 22. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 22, Sophie Arnaz, 2142. As Sophie Arnaz stood in the dark of the theater, holding a pistol, she watched the blue smoke from the barrel rise on a hallucinogenic draft of theater air and merge with the black smoke of dozens of candles. Two different smokes for two different moments of passion, but now they blew away on recirculated air, a phantasm of states of being that no longer existed in this place. The air smelled of that smoke, mixed with a rainy air seeping in through the back doors, but tainted by the scent of iron and spilled life. Marcellus lay still, legs tucked in a strange angle nobody could ever maintain. Blood pooled under him. It was starting to drip off the edge of the spotlight walkway like burgundy wax from a forgotten candle. She couldn't look at the wreckage of his face. His beautiful face. She was cold. Her body was still naked, and Arnez had gotten quite a bit more of Marcellus's blood on her than she'd anticipated. It only took seconds for it to go from a sticky warm liquid to a cold adhesive that felt like white glue drying on her skin. She wanted to toss the pistol, to throw it off the catwalk and away from her, like some cursed talisman or a poisoned apple, but she suspected she'd need the gun, the real gun, for the next part, the escape. In fact, Arnez had no idea how escape was even possible. She was in the military headquarters of one of the most secure vehicles in the solar system and was about to steal one of the most valuable human beings that the species had to offer. Getting away didn't seem like the remotest of realities. The entire plan was highly compartmentalized, so if anyone was caught, compromised, they said, nobody could affect the rest of the cell. She had fulfilled her part, which of course nobody else involved knew the details of, by taking out Marcellus Ball. But knowledge of the escaped belonged only to the crazy German she had only met ten days ago. He was a thief and a smuggler. She was but a fighter pilot. no. What was she now? A whore? A traitor? The person who betrayed her best friend and helped sell a century of human progress out to an unknown faction? Arnez wondered if this was how it all worked in all wars through human history. Myths of women like Mata Hari and Eleanor Gray using sex and flirtation as a weapon against gullible and horny soldier boys. She always assumed these women used their bodies to exploit men's flesh and therefore minds sex was a tool to be used, a form of information extraction far more effective than torture. But in the thick of it, she realized it was more than sex. Her emotions were just as raw as her victims. Because Sophie Arnaz truly loved Marcellus Ball and had for years, long before his time as a framer, since back in the academy where they studied tactics, combat, and games in theory. She hadn't slept with him the night simply to use him, She slept with him because years of romantic frustration finally culminated in sex, like the center of an hourglass, where the sand bottlenecked and went from random tiny stones to something as important as time. Her mission was to incapacitate him, not seduce him. But she had to try to talk him out of the mind frame. She had to at least give him a chance to exercise free will and leave, didn't she? Everyone said it wouldn't work, even with that odd device she used. The framers couldn't be seduced out of the deep reality their half-alien minds had built. And the attempt at talking to him led to sex. Wonderful sex, with drafty theater air combating all those mismatched candles for temperature control. Dreadlocks falling on her breasts and reaching orgasm three times. The sex was about love, not about tactics, or the war, or the lariat, or the deviance but other deviants surely hoped she'd use her body in their war if it meant removing Marcellus Ball. Others higher up in the deviant chain of command used Sophie Arnaz as much as they planned to use Marcellus. She was told to do this, to manipulate the man she loved. Every part of her psyche screamed, no, but she didn't show it. Not a twitch of emotion on her face. She had no choice, but to answer their call. She was after all, deeply in their debt. The image of Marcellus laying on the spotlight platform above the theater on Echo Street, full of bullet holes. His face, a mash of blood and missing parts was enthralling. Now that she finally met his frozen gaze, Arnez couldn't turn away from it. This was him. Marcellus was creating his own death, his own corpse. The mind frame was so unforgiving and so realistic. She considered the gun, placing it back in her purse but she didn't know where that would put it in reality. She held its awkward, flaccid menace and looked down into the dark, curious about Erwin and Barca. Then the world changed. Reality burst apart. The transition wasn't a smooth morphing from the mind frame to the corporal world. Elements didn't gradually shift from one thing to another as if the stage was being reset just before the lights came up. No, it was like popcorn popping, watching things vanish or appear in sudden bursts. A white wall appeared, hovering in the dark space 20 feet over the theater's seating. The candles vanished all at once, then the smell of smoke. The gun wasn't a gun anymore, but this other weapon that barely fit in her hand. Her naked body was suddenly clothed in a black flight uniform, and the gluey stick of blood was instantly washed away from her. Best of all, in one popcorn instant, Marcellus's face was no longer a sunken in bloody remnant left behind by a bullet. Marcellus's face, his handsome face, was whole and dry and healthy. His chest, wheezing his last breath out of a hole in the lung mere moments ago, was now pumping healthy human gallows of air. He was alive. He was fine. He was unconscious, but he was fine. The mind frame was no more. The rest of the room had appeared around her. Reality had fully set in as she was staring at Marcellus. He was wearing the loose, blousey shirt of a framer. All along the insides of the walls, hundreds of names looked like they'd been burned there by a laser. She leaned close and saw a few she recognized. They were the names of dead pilots and marines lost while under Marcellus's frame. How did he pull that off? They used a consistent machined font, so maybe the attendants did that. It suddenly dawned on her that the same thing was on his desk in the theater. The names of the actors from past productions carved in. It gave her a chill. The framing chamber was white on white, a small apartment with a kitchen, a piece of furniture that was part bed, part couch, a bathroom, a sophisticated isometric and resistance machine, which apparently he would mount and use when he was doing something in the frame that constituted exercises. Not much needed to be here, neither decoration nor hobbies, when the inhabitant would only ever think he was somewhere else. This chamber never existed for Marcellus, even though he'd lived in it for years. Instead, it was, to him, always, the Echo Theater. But now the stylish avant-garde Echo Theater was gone. In its stead was reality, Naval Theater of Operations Echo. There were three Naval Theater of Operations in total, the largest and most sophisticated vehicles ever created by the human race, and perhaps the most alien. They were built and flown exclusively in space, so they needed no aerodynamics and never worried about atmospheric drag or re-entry burns. In fact, they were perfect spheres, hollow, with all the habitable portions built on the inside of the shell, like the inverse of a planet, or like some underworld. The outside was mind-boggling, an alien ablative shielding that would react with outward explosive force to fend off attacks and meteors. It was perfectly smooth and showed no seams, no weapons, no engines, no sensors. But it had all that, and plenty of them. The spherical shape was what made them seem so utterly alien to Arnez. There was no aesthetic, no design, no flow. It was just a featureless black orb, the NTOs were either wholly lacking any aesthetic at all, or were created by a race for whom the most basic, simple shape could be aesthetically pleasing. Or perhaps mathematically pleasing, Arnez thought once. The entire thing was 4,482 meters in diameter. Her American brain knew that that was roughly 2.8 miles. WorldGov used metric as a standard, and more recently, it started to use KEL measurements, which were equally as arbitrated as inches or centimeters, but America somehow still hung on to its old way of measuring things with its customary units. Everyone lived inside the shell, which was populated by tall buildings, plazas, even a river and farms. Down was considered the outside of the sphere and up was always a point in the sphere's center where an enormous platform hung by tethers anchored to the ground. Post-combat, the NTO would park itself and act as a hub. When it did so, it would separate into four equal quarter spheres, four wedges connected by the central tethers. Once the shell opened, the fake gravity was dispelled and everyone was on the float. The rivers would be turned off as animals and insects summoned back to zero-G pens. Then the four wedges would use thrust to generate momentum. Two quarter spheres that acted as the north and south pole were tethered to the x-axis and two equal equatorial spheres were tethered on the y-axis. Each axis would spin independent of the other, so north and south were opposite and east and west were opposite, and all the spin created the equivalent of gravity. It always reminded her of the orange wedges she'd get in between quarters at a soccer game, but on an epic scale. After a battle, damaged ships would park inside the Four Quarters as NTO Echo would contract back into its spherical shape. The inside was a repair hub as well as the military command center. All the healthy ships in the fleet would travel alongside it as it flew to its new destination. Arnez had to live inside the sphere on more than one occasion as her fighter was repaired in between battles. She'd stay in an apartment building meant for guests and would luxuriously walk through parks and eat in an outdoor cafe. The atmosphere stayed with each wedge somehow, and you only had to stay in your building once Echo reached zero G. She learned early in every such stay not to look up, least even her trained fighter's inner ear would struggle to make sense of the wedges as they flung through contra-rotating circles in the sky above. The process of docking ships, resupply, and retracting the quarters back into a sphere took an average of seven days. At present, the sphere was still open since it had only been five days since the battle at Kuiper Belt, in which Arnez flew lead in one of the fighter squadrons. Arnez had to remind herself that to Marcellus, the entire battle was just a production of Hamlet. She apparently played Ophelia. She was familiar with the play, but only because her mother ran the elite bookstore at the plaza back in San Pedro and insisted the family read all the classics of world literature. Day five of the semi-sphere retraction was the busiest day. The damaged ships were completing their mooring duties and the gravitational spin of the quarters was just starting to slow down. The inside would reach a zero G when the motion stopped and then once all the parts were reassembled. Artificial gravity would somehow be induced and life went back to normal for the ship's inhabitants. Soon, gravity would be on the constant wane and as it lessened, cargo was moved to and from ships making the most of lighter weights. The dance of spinning down, loading, unloading, personnel transfers, wounded and dead being taken off of ships to echo hospitals and morgues was an overwhelming bit of logistics. There were five framers functioning to coordinate the task, making everyone choose certain corridors over others, delay or speed up their process a tad, all the tricks that happened when a framer pulled at your mind to make you part of a collective naval whole. One framer worked each of the quarters and one worked the center where the ships docked in their strange oversized struts and harnesses ready to be repaired as Echo sealed itself and flew to the next theater of operations. Marcellus was not one of these five framers. He was far more important. He was the Naval Theater of Operation Echo's tactical framer. He was one of the most powerful framers in the human race, capable of incredible feats of psychic logistics adjusting and readjusting in the fast pace of naval combat against deviant fleets. Every fighter pilot, every warship's captain, every sailor and marine who engaged in battle outside of the sphere were his purview. And today, with the help of a small guerrilla group of deviants, Sophie Arnaz was going to steal him from the World Navy. However, she was still at a distinct disadvantage of having no idea how she was going to get away with any of this. It was just her her lover whom she could barely even lift, an alien pistol she didn't understand, two shorted out attendants laying on the floor, and a quarter of Marines on the other side of the door ready to kill her in an instant to protect Marcellus Ball. Arnaz knew exactly three things about the plan. One, there was the mad German who would be somehow helping her escape. Her assumption was the guy was a hacker or explosives expert and planned to disable security systems or blow up a path to her freedom. Two, at some point she would have to put on the incredibly strange suit that the German had her practice getting in and out of two days ago. And three, she was ahead of schedule. Ever since she was a little girl, Sophie Arnez was efficient. She was praised for her efficiency when she was in the academy, given numerous promotions because of it in the Navy, and survived a dozen dogfights against deviants while in her trickster class fighter craft. She checked the clock app on her wrist to see exactly how early she was. The freckles there said she was 17 minutes ahead of schedule. She set an alarm for 16 minutes and 50 seconds, lay on the ground to cradle Marcellus Ball in her arms, and she wept. She cried at having deceived him. She cried at having killed him, even if just for a minute. She cried at fear of getting caught kidnapping while escaping NTO Echo. She cried at the state of the world at slavery, at downvotes, at the need for deviance to exist at all. She cried at human nature and corruption and endless war and greed and an unknown all powerful alien society that was soon coming to take it all away from them. Sterile, cold white walls made out of something not quite plastic and not quite ceramic set her a stark contrast with her black naval flight suit a much bulkier affair than the standard capital naval suit allowing for connections to her trickster's atmosphere, g-force reduction and the parachute on the back. The two attendant droids lay silently next to her and Marcellus. She now knew them as Barca and Irwin, the gay couple from the mindframe frame who helped stage manage. She wondered briefly if they knew what they were in the frame, if they acted out their roles as intelligent facsimiles of human personalities. It was either that or they were mute metal things their personalities and conversations all summoned from the imagination of marcellus ball Arnez dialed down her emotions using training and biofeedback techniques they taught her as a fighter pilot the anguish was replaced instantly by a wave of ice rushing in the center of her chest jumping out to her hands first and then the rest of her body she wiped the last tears away but knew she'd have plenty more to cry later on when she'd allow herself, and stood up. The instant her boots were both square on the floor, her collar issued a faint beeping because her 16 minutes and 50 seconds were up. She reached down to tap the back of her wrist and deactivate the alarm on her skin's watch app and was surprised to find that most of her wrist was taken up with a message. It was written, of course, in her melanin. She didn't know that the Skinner face system could be hacked, but then again, She'd been scanned and prodded so many times prepping for this mission, someone probably hacked her DNA's processor with a Trojan horse. Now, it was active. On her wrist were four words. Put on the suit. It wasn't a nicely typed font as she'd come to expect on her skin, but handwritten. It looked like it was drawn with a stylus on a computer screen by someone either in an awful hurry or with awful bad penmanship. The flight suit of every trickster pilot had a built-in parachute in the back. People always put parachute in quotation marks to indicate that this thing was not indeed a parachute that slowed your fall through an atmosphere. There was quite plainly no need for that in space. However, the parachute, when deployed, did still save a pilot's life. It was basically a device that would expand to a giant bubble that would fill with air. Its material was something beamed down to the messengers because it was impossible. The pilot, after ejecting from a damaged aircraft, would climb inside a little slit in the side of the bubble. With no known power source, the parachute would wick away heat or add heat as the inhabitant needed. The bubble's walls also showed an internal display of the battlefield so that everywhere the user looked, glowing icons and ship names were seen. It created a tactical line of communications because often the pilots floating in these little bubbles could give intel from vantage points no one else on the battlefield had the perception or the spare time to think up. Most remarkably, these little bubbles shielded the user from a host of nasty radiation types that were found bouncing around in space on a normal day, much less on a day where engines powered by aliens-know-what were exploding in every direction. Arnez had never had to use one other than training, and at this moment, she couldn't. Because the space in her flight suit's back where the parachute should be stored, was now filled with the most ridiculous garment Arnez had ever seen. And according to the graffiti on her skin, it was time to put it on. She unzipped the side and back of the parachute space. It was designed so one hand could fumble it open in outer space, wearing thick pressurized flight gloves. Oddly, it was more difficult to open in regular gravity with naked fingers, but she managed to wriggle it out. The thing inside looked like a clear plastic onesie. It was baggy. And would inflate with air that would circulate through the inside for a reason as yet unexplained to Arnez. affixed all over the surface of the suit were small white tiles no two tiles were the same size or shape each having clearly been molded by hand before they were set or baked in a kiln or however they were hardened now that she was seeing the suit inside of a framing chamber She couldn't help but think that it was made of the same strange, gleaming white material the chambers themselves were made of. This substance, porous and porcelain-like, but bendable like plastic and the sheen of metal, did something to redirect and refract psychic energies coming in from everyone nearby. It's what made a framer capable of manipulating dozens, hundreds, or thousands of spacers depending on the skill level and the assignment. The craziest part of the suit was the needles. There were eight needles, large enough to knit with, that connected to a grid of some sort of power system that inflated the suit with air. The needles were inserted in the arms, torso, legs, and neck of the wearer, piercing the skin. They somehow tapped the suit into the human's bioelectricity for power. Arnez slipped on the sagging shower curtain, leery of the needles. Donning it was an act which she had practiced when she was given the mission and given the suit. The orders that showed up with the alien garment were to practice getting it on until it was second nature and to never let the needles pierce her skin until the mission was active fair enough she did many dry runs but now in the real run Arnez got the suit in place and then pondered the needles two of the long things went in the calves two in the forearms two in the abdomen and two in the neck just like frankenstein's monster she did the right calf first waiting for her body to scream in pain as she jammed the massive spike clear down to the bone. But she felt nothing. Just a slide with a bit of resistance, and the needle stopped moving forward once it hit her fibula or tibia. She couldn't remember which was which under sane circumstances. Something in the needle had acted as an anesthetic. Aside from a slight pull where it entered the dermis, she couldn't feel it was in there. Not what she expected. She did the arms and legs quickly, got through the abdomen, and with a little worry about things hitting the organ, paused for a second at the neck. She breathed, focused, and slid them both into the vertebrae in her neck simultaneously. A moment later, she felt the back of the suit seal itself shut, and she felt a whoosh of air blowing all over her body. The ventilation shocked her at first, but within seconds was somehow reassuring. It cooled her body of the nervous sweat she hadn't been aware was accumulating here and there. She felt relaxed and in control. Then again, there could be some chemical compound in the circulated air making her brain feel that calmness. The World Navy did things like that with fighter pilots, why wouldn't the deviants? Her collar pinged once she had the suit on, and she looked at her wrist again. It was hard to read through the plastic and the white tiles, but the handwritten scrawl said, put ball in bed. She did. He was lighter than she'd expected, but it still took some doing to get him placed on his small bed-couch thing while wearing her strange suit. Erwin and Barca suddenly leapt to life. They hovered in the chamber above Marcellus and made a series of deep thrums as they were, what, rebooting? Arnez had set the weapon down on the exercise machine when she suited up. She started to lunge for the weapon again to shoot them back down, but they slowly hovered over Marcellus. One grabbed a blanket with little metal arms and covered them up as the other adjusted the pillow. Then, they just hung there. The control next to the doors, an incredibly sophisticated locking mechanism, beeped and changed into friendly opening colors. Someone was coming in. Arnez crouched over Marcellus's body and held her weapon forward. Once that door opened, a team of Marines would be looking straight into the framing chamber and see Arnez in this inflated alien suit holding a strange weapon, she would be dead within seconds. She held up the weapon that had knocked out Marcellus, but it was a hard thing to hold. When Arnez was in high school, she tried to make a mug in her ceramics class that had the handle inside the cup instead of outside. It led to a strange thing, awkward due to her rudimentary skills, Her hand would grip the inner handle, which was too wide and clumsy and hot from the coffee to be really all that useful. The whole mug had to be oversized just to accommodate the design. She then realized that coffee mugs had evolved to be what they were by hundreds of years of human technological invention, as well as the basics of the human hand. This weapon reminded her of that. It was a lozenge, about 18 inches across, and the handle went inside. There were four metal plates on the inside of the handle that activated it to perform different attack types. Which of the four you depressed and in what order told the weapon to fire this or that type of charge? She knew a few combinations. One to put down the attendants, one to make Marcellus sleep, and another to kill. Its kill output was similar to the energy lances used by the global police force, but it was a tenth the size. It wasn't meant for a human hand, if that Arnez was certain. Something with more dexterity and longer fingers, perhaps, used this thing on his, her, or its planet. It was an alien weapon dreamed up by the deviant messenger Arnes had recently learned about. She had pressed two plates and shot Marcellus with it and put him in a state identical to sleep. She aimed the front of the thing, though it was hard to tell what the exact front was since there was no barrel, toward the vault-like door securing the framing chamber. She readied for a battle she couldn't hope to win, She knew that outside the chamber, there was a long hallway with only one door to escape through and eight special operations marines trained and eager to kill a deviant coming through it. That was exactly eight more marines than Arnez could kill in combat. About two seconds, the hatch would fully cycle open and these eight marines would all see inside the chamber. Half would charge their lances to fry her. The other half would draw their vibro sabers just in case. The next minute of Sophia Arnez's life was either going to be her last or be very, very unexpected. And thus ends uh, this chapter of Sophia Arnez. I know I must have done something right because as soon as the cliffhanger hit, Brent cursed me out for leaving him hanging with the chamber door open. Thank you for listening. As always, if you're interested in reading my earlier book, uh, 181 Pine, Or if you're interested in reading the books of Zach Smith, the co-host of our sit-down episodes, you can find them in the merchandise shop at mindframepodcast.com. You can also find t-shirts, coffee mugs, all kinds of cool stuff. So if you like the show, grab some uh, merchandise, wear it around. It's a good way to, to spread the love and spread the word. Also remember... check them out for other podcasts you can listen to such as paranormal punchers and hillbilly horror stories there's a good amount on the directory so check them out find some new content that you can listen to also a big way to support the show even if you don't want to become a patron or buy merch a free way to support the show is just to share and like and uh, retweet and so forth uh, using social media that's one of the best ways for any podcast to grow it's more organic Uh, Your friends on social media are going to listen to your recommendation a million times quicker. They're going to listen to a recommendation that's sent to them from Facebook that we paid for or something. So any kind of like or share is a a great way for that sort of viral spread. So if you want to find us um, on social network on Facebook, you can find us at Mindframe Podcast on Twitter. We are Mindframe Pod and on Instagram we are the mindframe podcast so check us out on the on the main uh, platforms give us a like give us a love give us a share give us some comments uh, we love hearing from you the facebook group is really active a lot of times people pose cool questions and get into some debates and conversations so gauge we're always on there you'll probably hear from from one of us etc uh, share the love and we really like it and we like that kind of engagement so it means a lot to us uh, and it's it's uh, kind of builds a cool community uh, and everybody starts to to talk about stuff so think about doing that if you haven't done it yet it's just an extra uh, step you can take so hope you enjoyed the episode we will see you soon and remember as always the lariat is closing